G'day and welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investor's weekly podcast radio show. Well, this week we'll catch up with the meaning of the Reserve Bank's statement and we'll investigate a couple of unusual investments, volatility and electricity. But let's start with the RBA. Ahead of the interest rate decision on Tuesday, the Australian dollar climbed steadily, anticipating the bank following other central banks around the world in foreshadowing tighter monetary policy. But it didn't happen, and the Aussie dollar got crunched. Here's Felicity Emmett of ANZ Research to explain what happened. You know, the market did really get, I think, a little bit carried away with itself and it got confidence from the change in tone from a number of central bankers around the world last week where we saw especially uh, banks like the Bank of Canada change their tune quite quickly and suggest that rate hikes were quite close. And I think the market really did take that on board and think that perhaps we could see some sort of signalling from the RBA at their meeting to suggest not that a rate hike was imminent, but that perhaps that's where the next move would be and it perhaps wasn't too far away. But we didn't get that in the end. What do you think the next move in interest rates in Australia is going to be, up or down? Well, I think we're quite some time away from another move. I think it probably most likely will be a hike, but not until 2019. I think in Australia's case, Apart from the fact that we actually have had a little bit of a move up in interest rates when you think about what the banks have done with investor rates, also our cash rate is nowhere near as low as rates around and that's what um, board member Harper was noting last night, that our policy is not as stimulatory as it is around the world. And so I think that the RBA can sit tight for a lot longer. And also, we have, I think, a labour market that's in quite a different position in terms of the amount of spare capacity. We still have the unemployment rate at 5.5%. So that's still above the RBA's estimate of where full employment would be at 5%. But we also have very high underemployment. It's at 8.8% now. It actually doesn't show much sign of coming down at all. And this sort of suggests that there's still quite a lot of spare capacity in the labour market. And until growth is strong enough to use up all that spare capacity, it's unlikely that we're going to see wage growth. And that wage growth has two implications, or that lack of wage growth. It means that we won't get much inflation. And it also means that there's a lot of pressure still on household incomes, which is going to weigh on consumption, which is the biggest part of the economy. It's interesting, given what you've just been saying, and looking at Europe, where the economy is growing pretty strongly, uh, America close to full employment, it sounds like Australian interest rates uh, and monetary policy should be lower and looser than in other countries, not the other way around. Yes, well, I think that we are, are lagging the other countries and I think that's why the RBA will probably like to keep its cash rate lower for longer and perhaps get the benefit of being in a different part of the interest rate cycle um, on the currency. So, and, and we saw that this week, the markets all G'd up, thinking that the RBA was going to move 
their their tone and their rhetoric in the same way that other central banks had and the Aussie dollar had ramped up in anticipation of that and when they didn't we saw the Aussie dollar come back so i think you know when you think about that in a more medium term sense i think the RBA would be hoping that by keeping their their uh, cash rate low and not moving with the rest of the world that they will get some benefit from a lower Aussie dollar that will help to really continue to support the economy so do you think that'll actually work i mean do you think that the Aussie dollar will now come down uh, into the 60s? Well, perhaps not the 60s, but I think we will get a, a little bit more stimulus. So I think it'll probably gradually fall to the low 70s and perhaps as low as 70. And it does tend to overshoot, so you couldn't discount it going into the 60s. But I think apart from the fact that we'll be in a different part of the cycle with interest rates, as other central banks raise rates, and as the Fed adjusts its balance sheet, you're going to get a lot more volatility in financial markets, I think, over the next couple of years, certainly compared to what we've had. And that will not be something that supports the Aussie dollar. So I think that the combination of that changing interest rate differential and higher volatility in financial markets is probably going to put downward pressure on the dollar. And that's really will be helpful to support Australia's recovery without boosting housing the way that uh, low interest rates do. Yes, the low volatility over the past six or 12 months has been quite surprising, hasn't it? Yes, very surprising, especially when you look at any sort of measure of political uncertainty. It's elevated around the world, but we're not seeing that reflected at all in markets, which I think is is very surprising. And I think it's something that central bankers would have one eye on and be watching that sort of thing very closely. And we saw some comments a couple of weeks ago from central bankers alluding to this when they're talking about equity markets being priced to perfection. I think it is a concern. That's right. Volatility has evaporated, as we know already, which means a really good investment strategy this year has been going short volatility. And sure enough, it's become very popular, especially among small retail investors. Trading volatility simply involves buying and selling options and futures based on the VIX index which measures volatility, the same as you'd buy and sell an ETF. And you can also short it, which involves betting that it will go down. One of Australia's most active volatility traders is Simon Ho, who runs a hedge fund called Triple Three Partners. People love to get short the VIX, partly because the amount of carry in the trade is enormous. And when I say carry, I mean if you buy it and you hold it, the VIX tends to go down according to the futures curve. So it looks a little bit like an interest rate curve in that the futures curve for VIX is upward sloping. So if you buy a further away contract in VIX, over time, if nothing happens, the value of that futures contract is going to converge, going to go lower towards the actual spot index level. And so that is what creates a tremendous source of carry. In fact, to the point where often, if you hold it for a single month, you can earn as much as 15% in a single month. And there's very little out there that is going to give you that type of return. And so that, that's make, that is what makes it so attractive to retail investors. That is really interesting. So the way that the index works, or the system in a sense works, is that the further out you are, the more that the market predicts high volatility. But in fact, Correct. Th- that high volatility virtually or usually doesn't actually arrive. And so 
as time goes on, volatility actually falls. That's right, exactly. Volatility trading, look, it might seem a little bit complicated for most of your listeners or for most people in general, frankly. But in fact, it is likened very often to try and help make the connection with it to insurance. We know that when we buy insurance policies, invariably we're paying more than what the insurance policy is probably worth. In fact, it's the same with options. Options have been around since 1973. And in that time, 87% of the time, if you do a backward looking view at the cost of that insurance at the end of it, it is 87% of the time more expensive than what it is actually worth. So your point is very valid, but if you short it consistently, well, then you can make outsized returns. However, there is a huge caveat, and that is that volatility tends to go down slowly, but it spikes very strongly in the event of some shock like 2008. And in that case, the VIX went from low teens to as high as 80, and that can be ruinous, financially ruinous, if you're on the wrong side of that particular trade. But For the most part, people want to be involved because you can earn these tremendous amounts of carry in very short periods of time. So are you saying that most of the retail investing that's going on in volatility is short? Yes. Well, that is astonishing. It is. It is. There's so many things about this that you would not have thought if you were writing down what you think it would look like from 2006 to now. I don't think anybody would have predicted it. So all these short volatility investors... Uh, betting that there's no great shock. They're betting that there isn't going to be a plane flying into a skyscraper or they're betting that there isn't going to be a war in the Middle East. Essentially, they are. And I think when you continue to do something and you make lots of money out of it, typically you become emboldened. And, and I think that's a lot of what's happening. You know, We've had QE going on right around the world for a number of years, and that's basically insulated the entire world from any decline or any serious long decline because of that. And so people are just getting very comfortable with the idea, but they shouldn't. At the end of the day, volatility is abnormally low. It is not going to stay down here. This isn't a regime shift like 1999. People were predicting that all the internet companies in the world would be worth billions of dollars. It's the same kind of scenario. And if you are short, you have to be prepared to know that you could in fact lose all your money if the VIX were to spike like 2008. In fact, volatility has been surprisingly low this year. Everyone predicted an increase in volatility. In fact, it's been incredibly low. Yeah, it is a little bit of a conundrum. People are often wondering why this is and whether this is in fact a change and that we're never going to see volatility again. As I mentioned earlier, nothing could be further from the truth. Volatility has disappeared this year. And one of the primary reasons is that the economy has really never been so calm. If you look at the rate of change, for example, in the rate of growth around the world, it's incredibly small. In other words, the deviation in economic activity is small. And so therefore, As a function of that, so too is the deviation in the volatility of uh, stock price indices. So the VIX is plumbing lows. So S&P is the barometer, the main global index. The volatility on the S&P, as represented by the VIX, we haven't seen as low levels since the 1950s. It is quite extraordinary, unprecedented, in fact. And, um, you know, we just don't think that can persist. Uh, Everyone thought that volatility would rise because of political populism, in particular Donald Trump, but also Brexit and so on, uh, and that never happened either. Was that surprising to you? Yeah, it certainly was. I think, uh, yes, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I think maybe people were focusing on different things, like the promises that he was bringing about massive infrastructure expenditure and improving their trade positions by not engaging in trade deals and so on. So I think he was probably buoyed by that. But frankly, 
Rates have continued to stay low, and that's a big driver of this asset bubble that is occurring all around the world in multiple asset classes. But if you take stock at the last six months of global stock market activity, you'll see that I think the Wall Street Journal reported that it's been one of the best half years, first half since 2009, and the fifth best in the last 20 years. So again, it just reinforces everything. It's a bit of a strange situation. And frankly, it builds the case for people exercising caution because you know we're even higher than we were before. On a case-shiller basis, you're talking high 20s in terms of um, price earnings ratio on a, on a shiller um, PE ratio and 18 times in the, in the standard metrics. So it's certainly not a cheap market and assets in general are very highly priced. An investment closer to home is Rooftop Solar. Now, this week, a German company called Sonnen launched a new product in Australia that it's calling Sonnen Flat. Basically, you buy the solar PV and battery system from them and then pay a flat monthly rate for your power. They're promoting it as a kind of mobile phone plan for electricity, although it's not really like that because you have to pay $10,000 up front for the system. I think it's more like an investment. And I must say the return looks pretty good. I'll let the sales and marketing bloke from Sonnen, Philip Schroeder, explain how it works. The Sonnen Flat for Australia is an electricity tariff that comes across like comparable to a mobile phone tariff where you have just one monthly payment that is covering all your electricity costs. It starts at roughly 30 Australian dollars and it will cover your entire electricity bill. So if you sum up 12 payments of $30 per year, you'll see that you'll have a cost below $400 per year, which is a saving for an average family in in Australia of almost $3,000 per year. Right. So let's get some more detail as to how that works. This comes about as a result of buying a solar, rooftop solar battery and uh, inverter system from Sonnen, right? Correct. So basically, all you have to do is you have to install a Sonnen battery, which is a lithium-ion phosphate um, energy storage system that is hooked up into the internet and you have to connect it with your solar system. And this system is then connecting into our virtual power plant. And we actually use this virtual power plant to take advantage of price positions at the wholesale market, but also to stabilize the grid. And these incomes are being handed back to our customers in form of a free electricity contingent. So are you, you're selling the equipment, the solar PV correct, and the battery, correct. right? What's the price of those? The price is starting roughly at 8000 Australian dollars. And depending on the size of your house and your consumption goes up to 10000 12000 Australian dollars. Is there any kind of cost in terms of when you take the electricity? I mean, the times that you would get the best price for the electricity that you put back into the grid is also the time that the household needs it. Um, That depends. We are guaranteeing the customer that we will operate the energy storage device in a way that it will not harm his own consumption behavior. So the customer can take full advantage of the savings of his storage units with his own solar electricity. But on top of that, obviously, we will try to use the system as much as we can for wholesale trading and also frequency regulation. However, we do guarantee 10,000 cycles to the customer. So we guarantee that he is going to have enough cycles for his system, no matter how many cycles we are running on the system for our Sonnenfeld model. And on top of that, we are guaranteeing him that he will have his entire electricity bill covered by the amount of $30, um, for example, per month. So the customer doesn't have a risk, even if we should interfere with his own consumption behavior in one instance. 
you get a certain amount of free electricity, but above a certain correct. above that amount, you then pay the normal tariff. Is that right? That is correct because, of course, we want to make sure that if you, for example, choose the smallest tariff and take a small zone battery into your home, but you want to run your bakery with the tariff, then obviously we will at some point ask you to pay what is exceeding the free contingent of electricity that we are guaranteeing to you. So what do you say is the normal consumption of electricity by a household? And is that covered by one of your tariffs? Yes. If you look at our three tariffs, we have looked at an average home. If you look at the medium tariff, it is the average consumption of an Australian home. The smallest tariff is a bit below the average consumption, and the larger one is about 20% above an average single home in Australia. So we're pretty much covering whatever the customer needs and benefits him the most. And of course, the customer might have a restraint because they might not want to invest in the largest battery if they don't have enough solar on their rooftop. Yeah, so that might be another challenge for the customer when they actually want to apply for the largest tariff. And that's the background to that. I'm just trying to think about it as an investment, right? So I'm going to invest $12,000 in the Sun and Flat, the whole package. If I pay $40 per month to Sonnen for the electricity, what, what sort of return do you think I'm getting? What's the saving per annum that that will generate? Yeah, I can give you a straightforward example. So, for example, if you take the Sonnen flight uh, with an 8 kilowatt hour Sonnen battery, you would be paying to us $30 a month. This will be an investment of $360 per year. And you will be saving if you're now comparing that to... But the investment is the cash up front, the capital investment. What is the capital investment required there? That's 12000 or $10,000. It would be around eight to $10,000. And if you now look at the annual, just if we get to the annual saving, the annual saving is around 3000 Australian dollars. So you have a return on investment of three to four years for the hardware. Or well, 30% per annum, roughly. Correct. The other thing is that with a mobile phone, you don't have to pay the money up front to buy the phone. Most companies provide you with a plan whereby the cost of the phone is paid off over several years as part of your phone bill. Will you provide that as well? At the moment, we are working on a financial solution for our customers that they do not have to pay upfront cash. Since we are just starting in Australia, at the beginning, this tariff will be only be available if you have the upfront payment ready for the Sun battery, but we're working hard to find a solution very soon to also have debt financing available for customers so that there is no need to have a full upfront payment for the Sun battery. In January, you announced a plan for Germany for apartment owners, which was free electricity for 10 years. Why didn't you do that here? Because, to be honest, we are only starting and learning. Um, the Australian regulation is different than it is in Germany. And in Germany, we are confident that we can guarantee the savings over 10 years. Here in Australia, there's lots of volatility, especially if you look into the wholesale markets. And since we take the guarantee for the customer, there is some risk in it for us. So we are starting here at the moment with two years. But obviously, our promise for our customers is that we will have even more savings for them in the future because we are only starting the first business model, which is frequency regulation, just now in Australia. So we hope and we believe that Australia has more potential for that, but we will not be guaranteeing 10 years just yet because, first of all, we need to get more experience with the returns of the business model here in Australia. With your Sun and Flat plan, do you install the, the solar PV and the battery and everything within the same price? 
no, we cannot guarantee the same price. That is dependent on the installation environment of the customer. There are different and individual requirements to the installation process, uh, depending on whether there's a solar system installed already. Is it a retrofit? Do you need a one-phase home, a three-phase home? Uh, you might know that Zonin is providing one-phase, three-phase, and also entire family of different storage products. So we cannot guarantee the installation price for every customer. But it is roughly, if you look at the smallest package, between 8000 and 10000 if you just look at the storage unit. But that includes installation? That includes installation, but I also want to make sure that people understand that is the difference whether you have to have a cabinet outside, whether you have to do an entire rewiring. So I just wanted to you know, underline that this is very customer-specific. Yeah, so it is, it is useful for every customer who's looking at Sonnet Flat to get a quote and to really understand what the individual installation price will be. But in a standard case, this would include installation. Not everybody like you is supplying the batteries, but um, there's a lot of people selling or at least developing software that will create virtual power stations from rooftop solar. Correct, that's correct. But I think if you look, from our perspective, the key of the potential of virtual power plants is that you can actually monetize on them, right? If you are developing a software that potentially could operate millions of assets, that's great. But from our perspective, it has been key for us to also manufacture the hardware because every Zon battery that you look at is hooked up to the internet. It has, an, in Germany, for example, an additional 3G connection so that we have a redundant communication line. If we just would be a hardware manufacturer for storage like LG or Tesla, we would not make that investment. For us, the key advantage that we have is, and that's the reason why we actually execute on monetizing um, our virtual power plant, is that we control the design and also the structure of the energy storage. At the same time, we are writing the software, and at the same time, we are implementing smart meters, and we are also providing the license as a utility. So we're bringing all together that you actually need to monetize on the potential. I think that's the key differentiator that we have if we look at our competition. In fact, Zonin was started by um, the former Tesla guy in Germany, wasn't it? Um, uh, I, I am that guy. So, you are that um, guy. I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought it was Mr. Osterman. Mr. Osterman is the founder, but I'm the te- former Tesla guy. So basically, Mr. Ostermann and Mr. Stiefenhofer, they started the company. I joined a bit later, and then I got hired by Elon to build the German Tesla business in Germany in 2013. I did that, and once Tesla came out with a Powerwall, I got snatched back by uh, the founders, and now we are operating to prove also to Tesla that we think and we believe we have the better product, and I think our numbers and our success in various markets is proving that. Now, this business of distributed generation or virtual power stations using thousands of private rooftop solars is clearly going to be a big part of the future of the electricity network. A leader in the field is a private company called GreenSync, which has developed software designed to let people trade their power. It's a big development, the whole thing, and a huge threat to existing power companies, so I thought it was worth talking to the founder of GreenSync about what's going on, Phil Blythe. So the decentralised exchange is really about trying to enable consumers to be able to participate more completely in the energy grid. As we know, there's many rooftops with solar panels uh, and increasingly businesses and consumers are are putting battery storage systems into their their homes and into their businesses. 
to both secure them from future price rises, but these resources can be used in many different ways to help secure the grid and basically make it more reliable. The recent blackouts we saw over the last summer are a good demonstration of the fact that we haven't got enough resources that are being properly utilised in our grids today. So the decentralised energy exchange has really hit the mark with many of the utilities around the country to basically unite the way that people are able to take these resources. It could be a controllable air conditioner, it could be a battery storage system, it could be a business that might be able to turn its freezing systems off for a short period of time and then be able to basically get paid for that through a marketplace, an open marketplace. Uh, AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator, has been talking about this sort of thing in particular, and also it was in the Finkel Review, the idea of demand management. But is your decentralised exchange working now? When when will it start operating? Yeah, look, at uh, early days for the exchange in terms of getting to the full marketplace. We've got two trials happening, one in Victoria and another in the ACT. Those trials will be happening over the course of this calendar year. And then we've got two other utilities and some large projects that we'll, we'll be announcing for calendar 2018. But look, I think the movement is definitely there. Certainly, AEMO, the energy market operator, has really signified the fact that it's important, it's almost imperative that for the energy market to evolve, that we need to be more inclusive of these smaller resources that are available within businesses and in homes and to make them an active part of the grid. When it was launched in February, it was said to be a world first and a revolutionary idea that would change the way energy operates. Is that still the case? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm over here in the US at the moment, both in California and New York, which are two hotspots in the US, which are very much craving the same sort of capability it's more heavily regulated in other countries in Europe and the US than it is in Australia. So in many regards, Australia is a sort of a frontier nation in the way that it's experiencing the problems of high renewables and such a large country per capita. We pretty much have more renewables per capita, certainly on our rooftops, than many other countries around the world. So I think what we're doing in Australia is learning how this is going to work and, and it's very much going to be something we can bring to other continents as a great innovation. Is there anyone else doing it in Australia apart from yourself? There's a few companies who are looking at peer-to-peer trading, which is probably yet another step further again. Powerledger is an example and Reposit Power. But those very much are at this stage nascent in that we can think about different ways that we might share energy. We might you know, let our family... Uh, receive some of the benefits that we're getting that we accrue ourselves in some sort of paper transaction. The really hard part is to understand how we transmit energy and the cost that we have to pay to move energy from one place to another. And if we can solve that problem and get a better reflection of the true cost of moving energy locally around our street, around our neighbourhood, then we really have cracked it to enable these peer-to-peer transactions to happen on a wider scale. But yours isn't peer-to-peer, yours is an exchange, is it? So you would become, in a sense, a part of the grid, would you? Yeah, the exchange is an enabler. So the peer-to-peer trading things engines really would sit over the top of the exchange or would use the exchange. They would be participants themselves. In much the same way as the energy retailer can use our exchange as well. 
they can essentially buy or, or sell the, the commodities from the exchange and then offer those directly to their customers. So it's not necessarily that every end consumer has to use the exchange. It's a way of basically opening up the new value streams that we can generate from allowing our resources, and by us I mean consumers, businesses, to be able to play that role. Now, if we can unlock that value, it's about allowing somebody to get paid for it. How big a part of Australia's energy supplies could this become? Look, it's forecast by the CSIRO and the Energy Networks Association to be in the range of 40% by 2030, which is a very significant part, which is why the Australian energy market operator and many of the utilities, I think eight of the 15 utilities so far have signed up for the DEX program. Because of such a large amount of our energy is going to be generated in this way by people, not just the energy markets, they become investors. Uh, you know, they're investing in their own energy systems. Previously, we used to think about investing in stocks on the stock market and maybe invested in, you know, a utility company because they provide stable returns. The opposite is happening now, that consumers are investing in their own energy systems to shield themselves against future price rises, but now also they're an investor in the grid because those same assets are playing a role as part of the larger grid. So it's really changing that landscape over the next five or ten years where, uh, you know, as investors, people want to have a sure bet that they can see a path to getting returned for their money. Have you calculated what the returns are now and in future when it's um, possible to trade the energy from investing in your own solar and battery? Well, certainly today you can have a solar system that pays under five years and a battery system that will pay probably around 10 years. You mean that it would pay back in that time? That's right. So quite a long time for a battery to pay back today. What we need to get to is where these systems are able to pay back within three to five years. And that's probably the sweet spot where there's capital providers who will essentially provide finance to underwrite these investments, meaning people just provide essentially an annual payment or monthly payment for their energy in the same way as they pay their energy bills through to an asset financer. So that's very much going to be crucial in terms of this really evolving quickly as the price of solar and storage come down over the next few years. Uh, an energy company's share price that's, say, selling at 15 times profit is taking a lot more than 10 years to pay back. Yeah, well, certainly. Utilities are facing some tough challenges with this. Obviously, it's cannibalising their revenue and their profits in in subsequent years. Many of the larger utilities have moved into rolling out solar and storage and believe that that's their future and they need to be harnessing these technologies and that's primarily going to be their new, new business model for the next 10 years. In fact, AGL has what it calls a virtual generator operating in South Australia as a test, as I'm sure you know, where they've got a whole lot of rooftop solar put into a grid. I presume they're using software like yours. That's right. So virtual power plant uh, software is very similar to what we do. It's being used by AGL and others to control these large fleets of batteries. And they then behave very much in the same way as a power plant. It can be switched on or switched off or you know, set at 50% of its use to reflect how the energy market prices move up and down over the course of a day or throughout the year.
when um, in 2030 the decentralised exchange that we're talking about becomes, say, 40% of the uh, electricity supply in Australia, what is the other 60%? Is there any place in the future for coal, do you think? That's an interesting one. I think the coal generators are being retired. And the, look, that's not even a ideological view anymore. It's really financial. Nobody, even the major electricity companies who own these large generators, think that it's viable to go and build another coal generator today. The financial systems around the world have really put so much doubt over the future of coal that it just it's uninvestable. The risks are too high. So I think the mix is really about what's still going to stay. The assets that have been built within the last 30 years have still got 10, 20 years life left in them. The ones that are nearing retirement will have to be retired, unfortunately, or fortunate for for certainly the renewables camp. But that means that we've got to be smarter about the way that we combine these intermittent resources alongside the gas and the coal generators that we have remaining to make sure that the energy security is is met. And one key way that we can do that is by harnessing a lot of smaller resources, whether it be controllable air conditioning loads or pumping loads from our water utilities, and combine them with renewables so that we get a much smoother and more stable grid as a result. Happy birthday, Bill Haley who lived from July the 6th, 1925 to 1981, dying at the young age of 55 from a brain tumour, but although he spent a long time battling alcoholism. But along the way, Bill Haley changed the world. In 1953, Rock Around the Clock was a revolution. That song and Bill Haley and the Comets started rock and roll. 64 years later, it's still going strong. Thanks to the fantastic Constant team and to ISM Studios for the music. Next week I'll look into investing in agriculture, mainly because it's about time and there's a lot going on in that field. And of course we'll also have some technology ideas for you and economic commentary. Speaking of which, I'll be popping up in your inbox on Saturday morning. See you then. (laughs) 